Hey there, ghosties. Welcome to episode 79 of the Ghost Lights podcast. We are going to be plugging away, getting up to 100 by the end of the year, so I hope you stay with us. Today's a very special episode. I've got a very good friend who has helped steer and shift a lot of the way I approach trying to be a man and an artist. His name is Colin Ahern. We talk about the differences between Superman and Batman, why he thinks Superman is better than Batman, and make some interesting points. It might be a challenge, but I urge you to listen, hear him, see him. We're enough. Now here's War by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. the ghost lights podcast has become but frankly i love it um ladies and gentlemen welcome to episode 79 of the ghost lights podcast i have a very good friend of mine on he's the one clapping in the background his name is colin ahern colin hello hello how are you i'm doing well how you doing i'm doing okay i'm doing okay this has uh, been this has actually been a dream of mine since i started recording this Aww. so i'm really glad that you're on here because whenever me and you hang out, we always end up talking about like our favorite movies and mm-hmm. acting, and we talk about my career. We mm-hmm. talk about you know where it started for you, and like those are always great conversations, mm-hmm. and it's they're always fun. And you challenge me; you uh, you don't let me off the hook. Well, it's nice to be invited. Thank you so much. Well, I'm definitely glad you're here. I appreciate I'm it. Def- I'm going to try not to stay with you on accents because I haven't been doing them very well for a while. That's all right. Yeah, we don't out. need to do them at all. It's no. just a wee bit. Yeah, just I'm just out of practice. All right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, Colin, me and you met in the halls at Metro, actually in the class, in yeah. the classroom. What uh, what brought you into theater? How did you fall into that? Um. Well... It's a little uh, complicated because I just, I actually just found out the answer to that question. <gasps> yeah, I didn't know. Um, this is great. Yeah, what really had, had brought me to theater, other than the fact that it was the one place where I was um, told to keep going as opposed to stop, you mm. know, like so. Yeah. Uh, everywhere else, like in class, I was always acting out or, you know, causing distractions or. Um, you know, I was helping other people with their homework instead of doing my own. Like I was just constantly causing distractions. That's all I was doing and uh, getting in trouble for it. And then when I started doing theater, all of a sudden people were like applauding me for doing the same stuff. And it was like, yeah, okay, well, okay. This seems like the place I'm supposed to be. Nice. Um, so I started doing uh, theater in uh, high school and then absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and it just be, kind of became my entire passion. I developed like a whole, my whole life it, based around theater, all of my, Lifelong philosophies are based around theater. It just became like a religion for me mm. um, throughout that experience. So going to college and doing theater was kind of like a natural step for me because there was nothing else I felt like I could do. Mm. Um, but what I found out recently <laughs> was that um, I have a, um, a personality disorder, and that personality disorder um, made me kind of do what actors do automatically without knowing it mm-hmm. so um where other actors go to class and they apply skills i was more going to class and just showing off this 
ability I have to naturally empathize with people and become different people, but it was done as a psychological comfort and not as a intentional performance. Mm. And so um, that's kind of taken a big rug out <laughs> under my feet. I, I was so proud of myself for some of these roles that I did and, and now seeing it through a different light and understanding that um, it was just kind of my mental health outlet um, that I got away with. Mm. Um, that's kind of what really got me into theater. And I think that's still, you know, a really cool thing about theater is that it's a place where people like me are welcome. It's always the place for the weirdos and the freaks. It's like the home for us, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like even though I wasn't there for the same reasons that everybody else was, I still felt, you know, accepted and welcome and part of the group. So Absolutely. yeah, that got me there and that kept me there. Hmm. When you talk, when you, through this new lens that you have, one of the roles that when, that I saw you do that I was like, Oh shit, I definitely, definitely got to keep this guy close. You, you were the star of this play called Joe Egg. Do you look at that performance differently now? Do you, do you see um, traits, skill sets that have maybe taken on a different light since your diagnosis? Well, well, that role in particular, I, I always loved because I felt like it was the one that allowed me to really be me, mm. you know? So it was, it's much more like a Monty Python sketch, mm. you know? And so like, that's a role I would always love to go back to because it was just so much fun to perform. Mm. Getting to do all these different voices and play these different characters and be silly on stage the whole time. Um, you know, that's just an absolute barrel of fun for me. So uh, that role in particular, I just feel like took advantage of all these little personality quirks that I've got. Mm -hmm more than others did. Looking at my skill set um, through this new lens, you know, beforehand, I, I would have told you almost a lot of the same stuff, really, that I don't, I can't teach people how to act. I never wanted to be a teacher. I never could be a teacher because I just go up there and like do what I do. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't have a method and it doesn't make sense to me that other people do. Like I get that people do, but yeah. It's, I've never approached theater from an analytical perspective where I'm like, when I've had to really think about um, what I'm going to do and what I'm going to do next. It's always been just kind of feeling it and then mm. going with it. And just so it's like a real personal experience and it's always been dangerous because it's not under total control. Like a re yeah. regular performer would have, I really have to rely on, you know, a certain being in a certain emotional space to make sure that these performances go off. And, um, I got really lucky that, you know, I've had very few breakdowns in the middle of, <laughs> in the middle of a performance, but yeah, my skill set now, I look at it and, I don't know, it just makes sense. It's nice for it to make sense. I'm, yeah. I'm a little disappointed that I'm not as good of an actor as I thought I was, <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to have answers to questions. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I will push back. I, I think you're, I think you are an excellent actor. It's it, interesting to hear you describe how it feels just like an, like an energy thing your performances, mm -hmm. your work in a rehearsal space, I would imagine. And and when you're talking about maybe it not being, I think the word you use is like safe mm -hmm. because there's, it, I feel like there's no necessarily like a, a, a through line that you're trying to hit, like a rhythm. It's just, or am I, am I missing the mark on that? Um, there is a through line that I'm trying to hit, um, but I guess it's more just, 
there's a story I'm trying to tell and there's a, I have a place in that story mm-hmm. and I'm just trying like hell to be that character yeah. and to make sure I'm part of that. I'm playing my part of that story. I've always been the mm-hmm. uh, believer in the actual your part there and all the honor lies. I, I just feel like once you recognize what your place is in the show, just, you know, do your part to the best of your ability mm-hmm. and know that that's, that's the greatest thing that you can accomplish is just being a part of a story, not mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. <laughs> so when there's no, it, it's not like you're at, risk for I don't know changing the blocking adding in a slap that's not there no not adding blocking or 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 changing blocking or adding a slap I am uh susceptible to uh messing up a line and you know skipping ahead I did that in Joe Egg I skipped ahead half the play without even knowing it oh wow and just thankful I had great performers on stage with me who were able to, to understand that I just skipped about 20 pages worth of dialogue and then were <laughs> able to steer me back on course and get the show back on. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of stuff that scares the life out of me because if that mm-hmm. other person hadn't known, mm-hmm. you know, I would have been going for my bow <laughs> yeah, before we even hit intermission and been like, what is going on here? I thought I had this. <laughs> I've, uh, I was doing a Barefoot in the Park on a, for a preview audience, thankfully, uh-huh. and I jumped five pages of argument to then d- deliver the, uh-huh. like, it's supposed to be my wife that's thinking about divorce, not me. Mm-hmm. And I said it five pages of, and watching the, the realization of my co-star's face go like, oh, no, mm-hmm. that's way too early. <laughs> and then hearing, yeah. hear my director and the audience go, fuck. <laughs> 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 and I'm just like, um, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> that's great criticism right there. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. The, there's there's nothing like a director in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> How Just, can I convey my disappointment in you? Yeah. Fuck. Fuck. <laughs> there it is. Mission accomplished. Well done, Wade. Oh. You got me. When you said that he had this natural ability to emphasize with the character, mm-hmm. where do you is that where was that evident before you started doing theater? Was it like it's the things that you watched, read? Um, I, I notice it a lot in the things that I watch and the things that I listen to. Music has a real strong effect on me. Mm. Um, but like movies especially have had a similar effect where it's like a bleeding effect. Mm. I'll go see a movie and then, um, especially if it's good, I am just a different human being walking out of that movie theater for at least a couple of hours. Sometimes it can last up to like three days. Mm. Um, and uh, it's just kind of weird. It's like I just put on a new skin and I'm somebody else for a little while and I really don't have any control over it. I just have to go with it. Mm-hmm. I remember um, one time we had seen Scream. This was right when it had come out, the movie. Mm-hmm. And we went to Denny's and we had, uh, you know, this is where we're all having coffee and sugar. So I'm just like high as a kite, mm-hmm. wired up. And, uh, we start chatting up these strangers, and I am. I did a masterful performance of uh, Matthew Lillard's character from that movie. I just was that guy mm-hmm. for you know hours talking to these people, and I just I mimicked his accent or his you know his, his weird way of talking throughout that movie, all his mannerisms and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it, I was out really outside of myself. I was weirded my I was weirding myself out while mm-hmm. I was doing this whole thing. Um, so it's just kind of an awkward, you know. It's an awkward experience, and I didn't realize that other people didn't really have this for quite a long time. I kind yeah. of felt like this was... I think a lot of people do have a, a bit of a different feeling leaving the movie theater, because it's, you know, there is kind of like a yeah. stepping out of that experience and back into the real world. You're kind of... 
there's a shift there, you know. Mm-hmm. But for me to, to stay in that shift place for hours or days on end, um, yeah, that that was the the part that I really loved about movies because mm-hmm. it's like you get to feel much cooler emotions when you're living them through a movie than mm-hmm. you do in real life, you know? Yeah. I always thought like fear. Fear is such a cool emotion because it's rare that you feel it in life and movies try to make you feel it all the time, but it's like, you know, to me, jumping out in the screen, that's not fear. Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs, that's fear, you yeah. know? When you actually feel scared, someone's watching over your shoulder, that kind of stuff. I'm like, that's that's one of the scariest emotions in the world to feel, but under a controlled environment, I think it's incredibly cool to feel scared. Mm. And because you know that it's safe, you know, it's a safe kind of a scared. Um, So for me to kind of get into the mindset of a villain or uh, the mindset of a victim or, um, you know, just that horror mindset uh, for a few days, it's just like you see reality different. And it's like a nice drug that it takes you out of reality for a few days and puts you somewhere else. I just love it. Mm. It's. I don't think it's healthy at all. <laughs> I don't <laughs> recommend it. Um, but yeah, that's that was kind of what I get out of it. Mm. Do you have similar experiences when you see live performances? Mm-hmm. Does it last the same the same amount of time, or is it does it hit different because they're you know real people right in front of you as opposed to through that that wall of the screen? Right. It hits different. So mm-hmm. the talent that I typically see on screen is a lot better than the talent I typically see on stage, and mm-hmm. that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the power uh, of live theater is stronger than the power of cinema. Yeah. And so I feel like, um, unfortunately, too much of my time watching live theater is spent criticizing what I'm seeing as opposed to actually feeling the impact of the power of it. I just feel like so few um, people and places are able to deliver um, and do what I think theater is meant to do. Mm. Um, but when they do it, it's, it is an, an, uh, profoundly impactful experience and it can last, um, months, man. I mean, I remember I saw a play called Lydia down at the Denver center. Um, it's to this day, it still sticks with me. I, it's a, it was down in the Rickinson, this, you know, a small little box, mm-hmm. uh, theater down there. And, um, that's where they kind of put on some of their more experimental plays. I'd seen this play and by the end of it, um, what was happening on stage, I wasn't sure I was okay with. There was, you know, uh, a young uh, teenage boy uh, masturbating his teenage sister, and she was in the process of killing herself um, while she was orgasming on stage, and this is how the play ends, and you're just kind of left like, whoa, what did I just see? I'm not sure that I, I don't know how I feel about that. And I mean, for days afterwards, I was left shook. Like, I couldn't pay attention to what was going on in real life because something would just really shook me about that performance. I went back and saw it, and it's just my favorite play. I just couldn't believe what a uh, uh, strong story they were able to tell and how well they were able to tell it and how I was able to empathize with a whole new group of people. Uh, it's about an Im- immigrant family that I you know, mm-hmm. have never really been around, I've never been able to experience. Um, I got to go through an incredibly unique story because of the talents of those people and the power of live theater. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like that's got the strength, but... Um, cinema seems to deliver a weaker version more consistently. Mm. What, in your opinion, what is the the goal of theater? I believe it should be to um, just change a person, just get them to think about something they hadn't thought about before. I really feel like it's that, just that. Mm. If you can like leave questioning something maybe you hadn't questioned before, or you know thinking about something that you hadn't thought about before. 
uh, I feel like the goal has been accomplished. Mm. Um, what I find depressing is that I, I find a real lack of theater that seems to be of that mindset. It seems to be like most people want to perform just because they want to perform and they want people to see them perform. Mm. Um, and that's a lot of the shows that I see. And I could you know, do without that. Yeah. But theater that's meant to, to change people or impact people, um, to make them different than they were when they came in. That's the theater I'm all about. That's the stuff that gets me fired up. Yeah. That's, I think, especially after the pandemic for myself, I mean, I feel like that's more of the stuff that I want to do because I, I guess I've been faced with, probably been forced to look at it, look at, the world differently more than I've had to before and or I should say more than I've allowed myself I feel like I've done a really good job of taking things to get outraged about mm-hmm. and then not do anything about mm-hmm. and then turn it off like compartmentalize it all right and over the course of this last year and a half or so it's like it's every day. It's mm-hmm. everything that you see when you scroll. Something mm-hmm. new to get outraged about and mm-hmm. nothing getting worked on. And so if I'm going to be in theater, if I'm going to dedicate my time to it in even in small ways through the podcast, it's I definitely want to talk about and do those things that make people think a little more. Do you... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, do you see cinema tv having a similar goal or is it just is it what's your take on that side of it um i see much more what i would just call bullshit for entertainment's sake Mm -hmm. um to make money or to to please people's ego um i don't see a lot of people who are trying to take big risks or trying to tell important stories i mean there are people out there but they're just not getting the the, they don't get the marketing they don't get the, Mm the exposure um and yeah, when it comes to theater, um, and I'm just talking about the theater that I've been exposed to, I've seen quite a bit of live theater around town here. Mm-hmm. I've lived in a few different states um, over the country and seen live theater in those places, and it's really not all that different. Um, yeah, I, I'm sorry to put it like this, but <laughs> it really it seems to me I, I just watch people jerking off on stage. Mm-hmm. That's it, it feels like that's all that I'm here for, and it's all that they care about is stroking their egos um, and not... Um, telling a bigger story here. We're in a position right now where the entire sustainability of our species is under threat. Mm. Um, and we're not taking that problem very seriously. Like that's a huge deal to me. Climate change is a huge deal to me. Mm. Racial issues are a huge deal. You know, these are things that need to get fixed. Um, and so I don't understand theater right now taking the time for, I mean, there's always a place for comedy and slapstick and stuff like that, but, um, there's more important stories that need to be told here. Yeah. And I'm just wondering to me if, if I was still kind of actively involved in the theater community, could I be, would I be all right being involved in shows like, you know, ragtime or whatever, you know what I mean? Like musicals yeah. and, and just whatever play comes along that I can get a part in or, um, would I feel like I have to dedicate myself to finding these difficult stories, uh, to tell so that I can feel like at least culturally I've had, some influence Mm -hmm. in trying to just shape this conversation to make sure that people knew that, you know, vaccines were safe or that whatever, you know, just getting accurate information out there. 
I just feel like when you have, you know, the, the empty stage is an opportunity. And you can literally, like, do anything with that space. Mm -hmm. And so it just really, really pisses me off when I see people have the opportunity and they just take a shit on it and, you know, decide to, uh, to, to just, you know, show off and, and uh, get applause and try to make some money and make it all about them rather than look at the issues, look at the power and the opportunity that they have to reach out to the community and take advantage of that. Mm. I just don't come across that attitude. I just don't see people thinking about theater that way. It's more just like, it's here for me. I'm not here for it. Mm. And I've, I've just never felt that way about it. Do you, would you be able to describe what it feels like when you're watching a show that's not, I would say, being authentic to the moment in and around where that show is being put on, like the context? Mm -hmm. Like when you say they're up there stroking their egos, what does that look and feel like to you as opposed to an authentic performance that is deeper than that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm assuming the people listening to this are theater people. I think that they would be familiar with what it feels like because to me it's it's like watching a rehearsal in class, mm. you know, where you're just kind of seeing a bit of that bullshit effort, you know, mm -hmm. where it's just kind of like the half-assed effort. Um, and they are completely focused on themselves because, you know, they're it's class, they're learning. And I'm yeah. like, it, it, there's, it, it makes sense there. Um, I don't see any risk being taken on stage. I don't see them leaning, lending themselves to the opportunity of the moment. You know mm. what I mean? There's, there's, They're just rehearsing their lines in their head and, and speaking them as they remember them. It's, mm. There's not a, there's nothing interesting to watch there. Um, when there is, um, in a one performance that stands out is uh, Glengarry Glen Ross at, at the Denver Center. This was probably, it might have even been 10 years ago at this point. Um, but I mean, the performances were so good. I didn't have time to stop and criticize. I didn't, they didn't allow me that moment to stop and, and think about what they were doing wrong or, you know, they were just so good and mm -hmm. they told the story so well, I was in the moment with them. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to stop to criticize them. Mm -hmm. That is just really rare to be grabbed by a cast like that mm -hmm. and, um, and have my attention held. Um, but it's great when, you, that, when that happens, man. Mm -hmm. it's, it is. It's cooler than any movie I've seen. It really is. Mm -hmm. what, who are, shifting gears slightly, who are those artists that you see on screen that go like, this is never about their massaging of themselves. It's, this is, these, these are the people that do honest, connected work. Hmm. You know, from a celebrity standpoint, most of them, I think, admit pretty freely to having a lot of ego in what they do. Mm -hmm. And that um, one big reason that they do what they do is admittedly, because they like the applause. Mm. And that was kind of the line that I had learned back in high school is you don't do theater for the applause. Mm. Um, I've since learned in talking to other actors, that's not the case. Plenty of people do theater for the applause. Um, so I just lost my train of thought. When we're thinking about actors that really mm. connect to that form of performance that's not Here's a good grandstanding. One. Here's a great one. Okay. <laughs> the most handsome man God ever created, Christopher Reeve. Oh, okay. Um, his He's... performance is Superman. Um, I feel like there is an opportunity to make something all about you and to really, I mean, blow your ego up. You're about to be every child's superhero. You know what I mean? He mm -hmm. was the world's superhero uh, from 1977 uh, until the day he died. Yeah. Um, and he didn't make that about him. You know, he was constantly about telling a story. He felt like he had to honor the character. 
um, he just he took to the role incredibly seriously and took to the role as an honor to do it and he, as if he had a responsibility. And um, I really, really appreciated that as being a big Superman fan and, of course, a fan of theater. That made me a gigantic fan of Christopher Reeve mm -hmm. um, because I feel like, yeah, that's the type of role where you, you can just, you know, beef up and make it all about scenes with you and your shirt off. And, you know, that's what Superman is to you. And, mm -hmm. like, you know, plenty of, of actors now are doing that kind of thing with their superhero roles. It's just about me getting my shirt off and looking sexy up on screen. It has nothing to do with the writers that took the time to, you know, write all these amazing stories to these characters. It's all, all the artistry that goes behind a comic book character. They could throw all that out. And they don't care about that stuff. Mm -hmm. They just care about the opportunity for them to show off. Um, Christopher Reeve didn't do that. He was one of those people who just took to the the honor of the the art first, mm -hmm. and um, he made Superman, uh, you know, a drama. It wasn't, it's, you know, I don't think people really call Superman a comic book movie like they call comic book movies today. Mm. You know, it was like a serious drama romance movie. Yeah. Well, it was, I mean, it, it had it had cachet behind it with those, a name you mentioned, Christopher Reeves, Gene Hackman. Well, Gene Hackman and Marlon Brando, I mean, Marlon Brando is specifically hired to give the yeah. movie a little bit more um, substantial oomph behind it there. Um, but he was a big pain in the ass to work with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like I said, to me, the work that Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder did in the movie far outweighs the work that Gene Hackman and Marlon Brando did in the movie. Not that they were bad by any stretch of the imagination, but the amount of work that those two young actors had to do uh, and how well they did it, I'm, I just that pale and everything else pales in comparison to me during mm -hmm. the during the film. The two of them are so good. Yeah. So when we're talking about like a good performance. Talk to me about the work that you think has to go into that. Well, that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. I don't know. Mm. I've always talked about it, and I've always tried to empathize with it because it's not an, a process that I've personally had to go through. Mm -hmm. There are people who, like you, like who read a lot of books about theater. Like I remember I read some of Uta Hagen's Respect for Acting, maybe a chapter or two, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, I think I was required to read it for class, and I never did. And that goes with um, almost every acting book that I've had. Mm -hmm. You know, I might get a couple of chapters into it and read it, and it, they all kind of say essentially the same thing. I really feel like acting one lays out everything you need to know about theater. Um, but um, I have never taken to that analytical approach towards theater. So I just thought, man, these things just don't click with me. I don't understand how you read something on the page, go, aha, I get it now, mm. and then go and apply that new technique. Yeah. I just never, it has to, to me, make sense to me in my soul. Mm. <laughs> I have to like, you know, change the person I am to identify that behavior, and then I have to go experience it for myself. Totally. And that's the only way to learn. Um, so yeah, looking at the work that professionals have to do, I've always been jealous because mm -hmm. I feel like these people have uh, I have to throw uh, kind of a, a roll of the dice. It's a gamble every time I take a roll. Mm. Um, these people have an amount of confidence. I'd not to say there's not a gamble that they take, but they're that good and they have a method that they can rely on um, to get them out of these situations when things aren't making sense or things don't click. Um, they're not relying on luck or just you know their mood that day yeah. in order to get them through a particularly difficult scene you know mm -hmm. that's the stuff to me that blows me away i you know actors that turn up on set and are able to go through these 
really emotional scenes and it's like their first day on set it's their first day shooting and they got to do like the most dramatic scene with someone they just met and in the movie they're partners for 15 years but in mm-hmm. reality these people know each other for 15 minutes and they're able to just like cry and get all this emotion and show all this connection and all this stuff i'm completely blown away by people's ability to do that that seems like a superpower that you know i have no idea how how they attain that so when it comes to the work these people do i know it's more than i've ever done and mm-hmm. um I'm jealous of it, and um, uh, I've always respected it. I just think it's, um, you know, it, it's a way to put me in my place. These people who can take it really seriously and, mm-hmm. and show the amount of uh, dedication it takes to not do just the fun parts, whereas for me, when it comes to the theater, I always wanted to just do the fun parts. I just want to get up on stage and play. Yeah. I don't want to sit down and do all the backstory, and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But these guys do because they're great. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things too, uh, when we're talking about like a, a specific point in our career, right? You ref- you talked about me for a second. I'm not on a, I'm not on these levels like a Christopher Reeves or something like that. But there is a there is a capacity to play with all of that homework that they do in advance. Like when I mean, you talk about like that 15 minute knowing somebody. And now we're going down this road together, uh, this emotional thing. I mean, there's a lot of, if they're on their stuff, if they're make, you know, if they're, if they are fully professional, they are trying to, they're doing a lot of prep work on their own, reading the script of the cover, not just their lines, which mm-hmm. I mean, when I'm exhausted, that's what I do. Like, okay, I need to read the script. I need, but I don't have the energy. I'm going to read my lines and I'll read the whole thing later. And see, that's the thing that I, it's, struck me as weird Mm. it's uh foreign to me when it comes to cinema actors because i feel like they um don't necessarily approach the material in the same way the Mm. lines aren't necessarily nearly as important to them as getting a hold of the character is they they feel of certain freedom to change lines and add their own that's true that we don't have that in theater we don't (laughs) that's just not a gift that we're we're able to to play with there um and so i get to feel like they they get to play a lot more and mm. that unlocks a big door when you feel like you're not necessarily beholden to the script that you can bring something of your own fresh to the table that might work with this character and might make it feel more your own. Mm. I, I mean, I, it just changes the, the, the game, you know, the playing field is different between the two styles. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, one of the things I've, I've had, I've had the good fortune of working like uh, one of our former guests on this podcast, Sheila Ivatraster. She gave, we were doing in-class work. There's about eight of us in there, and she would give us a, a two-partner scene, and we would we would start doing it until the point where we had it memorized, and mm-hmm. then we would do it without the script in her hand, and then we, mm-hmm. she's like, all right, we're on to something else, and then a week later, we'd have our next class, and then she'd go up there and like, do the scene from last week. So we'd, we'd jot it, we got it memorized that day, mm-hmm. and we don't have it memorized anymore, mm-hmm. and, she, and so I'm the first one up. I grabbed the script, like, no, put that away. You'll mm-hmm. need it. You got it memorized last week, and and then I go up almost immediately, and she's like, "No, it, it, you've got it. You've got the you've got the idea of the scene. Yes, what is it? What is it about? Okay, then have the scene. Get to the ending. What's it about? Mm-hmm. And to so then we get up there, and then once you get like your feet under you, you explore, or you just you 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 fight your way through this scene, and after like the second group, she goes like, okay, the last two lines are, uh, 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 
Mm-hmm. These are your lines. Mm-hmm. You have to get, that's your ending point. Get to that ending point. But I don't care how you get there. I just need you to get there. Mm-hmm. And so you see all these, you, you see that exploration of character without being beholden to the line. But that is, you're right. It's not something that I'm afforded to on stage. It's not like I can go up there and ad-lib Giles Corey's lines in The Crucible mm. when I show up for rehearsal. Like, mm-hmm. that's got to be, I've got to have that memorized. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then once that's the case, you are locked into that. There's not a lot of changing there. It's very true. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, uh, the the performers that I've always identified with have been like Jim Carrey, Robin mm-hmm. Williams, these guys that, you know, have dealt a lot with depression and mental health issues have been weird their whole lives <laughs> and found this one outlet where um, they're able to to play. Mm-hmm. And that, the ability to um, to be, what's the word I'm looking for? Protected in a sense. Um, you know, so when Jim Carrey gets hired to play the Grinch, he, there's not a whole lot of control over what he does. Mm-hmm. You know, he's getting the job because he's Jim Carrey. So everyone's pretty much saying, Jim, you need to bring you to this part. Mm-hmm. We're not telling you who the Grinch is. You know, yeah. <laughs> you get to really take this character and make him who you think he should be mm-hmm. and allow us to bring that performance to life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Again, we don't get that opportunity. We're not, <laughs> mm-hmm. we're not hired because people think we have this great talent. It's that there's a, there's a guided missile and you know we're the parts to that missile. We're we're going in a direction. We can't change that direction. We're just meant to fit this you know this previously set model. Mm. Um, and so yeah, those are two totally different experiences. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I, people who get to play, there's such a cool spontaneity, genuineness to it. There's a, a you know spark of the moment that makes it so interesting and fun. In theater, you have to create that, and I just feel like that takes more work. That takes more practice that takes more uh, effort mm. um, than playing does but um, the people who can play and do it so well they have a talent that I don't think you can learn mm. so you know what I mean like yeah. there's there's benefits and to both sides I guess but yeah. Yeah. how do you feel performance has changed over the years I mean you oh, were somebody that oh it's no. gotten so bad oh really <laughs> Like, you know, well, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about like 1940s acting, right? Like the old black and white, yeah. it's, it's kind of soap opera-ish now, I guess. It was yeah. just very dramatic. Yeah. And that, it, it fit that time. And, yeah. it, and I watched that acting and watch guys like, you know, Gene Kelly and, these, and, the, and the power and charisma they had on screen. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. They don't talk like people talk today. So it, it dates itself and it places itself outside of the reality that we know but it seems to fit. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that trend continued even as generations changed. But now uh, there is so much uh, opportunity for content that the quality of it has just gone down to absolute garbage. Mm-hmm. I'm, I was watching t- TV, something on Netflix the other day, and it looked like rehearsal. It looked like college class rehearsal. It mm-hmm. looked like people doing bad work. You know what I mean? That yeah. shouldn't be, they shouldn't be being paid for and presented as this is a performance. I mean, I, I just didn't understand it. It was as if they were just reciting memorized lines. And I just thought, what the hell happened? Like, I thought, I thought it took a little extra something. I, you know what I mean? Like, the acting that I see, I feel like I've seen pretty much 75% of the actors I've probably worked with mm. are now eligible for professional work. 
<laughs> where before I would have thought it was like 5%. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the small minority of people really have that kind of grit of what it takes. Seeing what it takes to get hired now and, and seeing what it takes to be called a good actor these days, I feel like almost anybody can do it if you can memorize your lines and not trip over them. Mm. Is that because it's it, it's so you can I can pull up my phone and start recording my new mm-hmm. thing and that's it's that, but it's also that you can record that thing and then you can put it up on a TikTok, or you can put it up on a YouTube, and you can get millions of people to look at it. So there's there's just so much hunger mm. for content that it doesn't matter if you do something that takes extraordinary work and talent or if you, you know, poop in a cup. You know what I mean? Like it can take absolutely no talent whatsoever and you can get the same amount of exposure. This, You know what I mean? Like your your work is almost treated similarly. Mm. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, <laughs> I just feel like doing something that is worth doing this day and age mm-hmm. Um, it must be incredibly difficult to get that out into the forefront because I'm not seeing it. I just see a lot of really bad acting. You see a lot of poops in cups. A lot of pooping cups. Yep. Yeah. Is that, I wonder, do you, do you find that that's because I can make that, that video on my phone popular to a million people and production companies are trying to get things like that? Well, I want it to look like that. Well, you're, well we're talking about two different things. There's uh, the production company has their goal, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I would think financial, but I'm thinking more about the artist and what their goal is. And, you know, I think a lot of these artists, they, maybe they don't recognize how selfish of a, of a career acting is. Um, but, you know, they really seem to want to, I lost my train of thought again. Oh. I hate when this happens. No, it's I okay. smoke way too much weed. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I had a shot of Jameson on an empty stomach, uh, so we're in should we do another one of those? By the way, do you want to do? Yeah, yeah I would definitely. Let's pour another shot. Let's, let's pour another that. shot. Let's do that. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'm gonna move this microphone out of the way. All right then. No, I'm not. It's still right in front of me. So I guess when we get back to it, and Dan, this would be probably a good time to take a look at that timestamp, so we know when to cut. What are we, what are we cutting? Oh, just me fumbling for glasses. This is this is the kind of content we're looking for. Yeah, this, this is, is the good stuff. This, this is, is the drama. good stuff. This is the drama here. Are we getting it poured? Hold what on. What if I vomit right after I take this shot? Let's let's not do that. Listeners, stand by. We don't have an overnight cleaning crew. Yeah, please oh. don't do that. I am. Uh, I'm pouring the Jameson into a cup. Can you hear the? Oh, that's good stuff. I gotta tell you, that's one of the most overused and irritating sound effects. I, I hear on the radio is the opening of a can and pouring liquid into a cup. Like every beer yeah. commercial has that. Yeah. That whole, th- Oh, it drives me crazy when yeah. I hear it. It's like nails on a chalkboard now. Yeah, it is. So, but when you do it for real, like when you actually are opening up something nice and cold, like a can, it is refreshing. It's really refreshing. <laughs> but when you see, hear it, I, on the radio, there's a, I, or not on the radio, it's a podcast commercial that is also a TV commercial for uh-huh. Bush Light Beer. Uh-huh. And they do this elongated Bush thing. Thank you. I'll right. move it back, Dan. I know. And uh, they do that on podcasts now. And that's the entire commercial. It's just a guy that says. The guy that just says Bush. He just says Bush. Well, and that's the 30-second spot. I got to tell you, I used to do write commercials for a living. And if if that, I, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> 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 if I've got 30 seconds and all you say is Bush. Yeah. yeah. That works for me. Bush. All right, to Bush. To Bush. Not that one. Or that Bush one. Bush Light Beers. All right, that one. It's going to be your rock star. It'll make you feel better. Oh. So, yes, sir. I was wanting to just say that, like, 
actors, I feel like what they are doing is they are afraid. I think uh, many of the actors I see in live theater mm -hmm. are afraid of taking risks. They're afraid of maybe admitting to themselves that this career is not going to work out for them. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they find themselves a safe space with which to perform, which is typically with a group of other theater people who aren't making it or aren't, you know, being that successful and just telling the stories that they want to tell. It really is just like you're finding Avoiding your friends. challenge. Exactly. Mm. Um, because you know that you can't meet it. Mm. And I just see that there's too much of a, um, you know, nobody wants to hurt anybody else's feelings. And when it comes to theater, it's an intensely personal art, you know, like if someone says they don't like your painting, I can feel like, well, yeah, I kind of screwed up that line there, you know, and you could feel like I could paint that painting again and maybe I could fix some of the problems with it. But when it's your performance and you go and you audition, you put yourself out there, you know, and people say, I don't like it, you really feel like they don't like you. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like there's, you know, you can't just go in there and do a line differently and, and get it. it. Just inherently they think that you weren't right for the part. The, the, a personal attachment to the work that they're doing uh, being – a comment on their personality right. and who they are. Yeah. Um, I, I, I always found Mike Birbiglia's joke about people not liking his stand up hysterical. Uh huh. Like it, it's cause I, I, that's when I'm hearing as you tell this, this section now is like doing stand up comedian. When they say that they don't like your act, they're saying they don't like you. And I like, Oh, that makes sense for stand up comedians. Because a lot of for for some of them, the ones that I should say I connect with the most yeah. are the ones that are making connections to the world that they see right. through their lens, and then they they make jokes about it. Right? I'm, yeah, you're talking about a certain level of comedian that's fairly advanced. Because I'm like these comedians that are still doing the airport jokes and you know oh, yeah, those yeah. kinds of. I'm like they're not really putting. No, we're not their, talking yeah. about Banya here. <laughs> no, we're not really like, Banya. Banya. You know, to kick that Ovaltine bit to the side, okay? Yeah. We're done with that. No, I have nothing but respect for stand-up comedians because yeah. um, they do a job that I know that I can't do. It is an absolute, like, fear of mine. And it's one of those bucket list goals to get up and do five minutes of stand-up comedy. And thinking about all the time I've spent in my life on stage in front of people, you know, like, I've got no stage fright, but I am scared shitless to stand in front of a group of people for five minutes who are telling me, you know, make me laugh. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm Absolutely. like, that scares the life out of me. So these stand-up comedians who get up there with all this confidence and they're able to do that, to me, that I mean, that's a talent that I just don't have. I'm always so blown away by them. Well, you know what's so funny? Like, I, I mean, I listened to this podcast uh, called Two Bears, One Cave, Tom Segura, Burt Kreischer. Um, they're, the, they're, the, they're the standard hosts of it. Tom Segura's been doing it a lot of late because Burt's been out doing a movie. And so he's been having other comedians come on mm -hmm. and talk. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the time, it's pretty free-form conversations, mm -hmm. two buddies talking, much like what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, But with comedians, they start talking about the work and the bits and what it takes to yeah. get to a certain number of minutes. And, and what I find is it's not necessarily a confidence in themselves to do the work. It's a confidence in their material. They refer to it as like it's a tight five minutes, a tight right. thirty. Well, that was that kind of gets back to what I was saying though. There's a, an, an inherent challenge built into being a stand-up comedian. Mm. You know what I mean? Because you you do you only have five minutes. You only have two minutes. You've only got this one bit. You got to make this crowd laugh. Um, you know, it's just different. Mm -hmm. You can't. You don't get to cater 
the crowd to you. You know what I mean? And like you can do that here with theater. You can be inviting your friends and family to come see your shows. You can be inviting the theater community at large to come see your shows and just feel like, well, you just get general support that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't get to do that with stand-up comedy. A lot of the time, the audience didn't even really plan on being there. You know, they just happen to end up there. And um, they're not necessarily in the mood for a, a show. You have to put them in the mood. And that challenge means you you have to keep getting better and you have to keep hard, be hard on yourself and you mm-hmm. have to accept criticism and you have to be willing to work on these things. I think stand-up comedians go through a, a lot more of a struggle than yeah. your typical actor does. I think actors um, can retreat into a safe space where they do a type of theater or performance that they feel cozy and comfortable with and stand-up comedians just are not afforded that luxury. They're yeah. con- constantly uncomfortable and have to fight to, you know, to make it look like they are. One of the things I, I love when I listen to stand-up comics talk about their work is when they get like a quiet audience, a cold audience, yeah. and how much or little their act changes because it's it, it's the act. Yeah. I've got I've got these ten minutes, and you are it's we're thirty seconds in, and everyone's shooting me daggers with their eyes. Mm-hmm. I've got I've got eight nine and a half minutes. I've got to get through this nine and a half minutes, mm-hmm. and then they and they go through it, and then they they talk about how they might win a couple. Right, like oh, I've got them laughing on something. I'll just stick with them, and and see if see if that spreads. I really, I've liked that mentality. I've heard that kind of thing a lot, where yeah. they um, just like feel like there's just this one guy with a sourpuss look on his face, and they're just like, I, I don't care about the rest of the audience. I'm making this guy laugh. Yeah, that's my goal. I don't care what I have to do to accomplish that. Um, their ability to be able to work with the crowd directly like that is such a cool bonus that we don't get. Because mm. um, I keep thinking like, man, I'm barely aware of the crowd. During a show, mm-hmm. uh, during a comedy, I basically am only looking for that background noise of ha 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 at the right points. I, you know, I don't care if every joke lands. I don't care if every bit lands. My focus isn't really on their reaction. I just need to know that, like, here's the noise so that I can start making sound again when they start coming down. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, yeah. Right in that way. Yeah. I, it's, it's one of the things I've, I've been able to notice about my, my path in performance is there was a big portion of my early career like the first seven years where i couldn't see shit on stage yeah i couldn't see you across the table from me because i would never act with my glasses on Mm -hmm. because sam gilstrap needed corrective lenses not malcolm right or you know insert name here Mm -hmm. of characters i played without my my prescriptions like Musa, I played Musa in Bang, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad mm-hmm. Zoo, and I couldn't see anyone. Mm-hmm. When I had someone's genitalia pop out on stage that night, I couldn't see it, even if he like waved <laughs> it at me. It wasn't gonna happen. He poor baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was, he was, he was ready. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but then I got contacts for one show. Uh, Thank you. Shout outs to the Arvada Center. Woo! And I got was able to put those in, and that I realized the first time I went out there for like a rehearsal with those contacts in. And I could see the director like ten rows back as he was taking notes. I'm like, oh fuck, that's gonna mess with me. And that, like, I start once I could see people, then I really had to work on focusing more into just the moment, just those little tasks here and there that my character was ta- like, I'm getting redundant, tasked with. Mm-hmm. But just focusing on those things to try and cut out that that chatter because like. I'll be up there and I'll see a couple leaning on each other because they're sitting in a section that's got four chairs out of it. Like they're, there's just two in these four open spaces. So mm-hmm. they're just like, I like lounging on you. Like you're my couch and I've got my feet up on these seats. And like, 
I find that super distracting because your feet should be on the ground because you mm. only paid for two seats. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, that's it, it, that's just me trying to get right about certain things. It, like, it's so. F- I don't know if I'm necessarily talking about what you're talking about. I just wanted to talk about me being able to see the audience. <laughs> I just I just realized, like, oh no, I'm just going on a tangent about me. Real good. That's good. No, I guess you That's know, good Gilstrap. I'm just thinking that like, what would change in a live theater performance mm-hmm. if the performers on stage were able to work off the crowd the way a stand-up comedian does? So. A stand-up comedian, especially a, a, a good one, is going to have multiple sets. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's not as if they only have one 10-minute set. They just have the one that they've been doing on this particular tour or whatever, right? So it's not going well. They have all these little tools they have in their back pocket they can pull out or other sets or other jokes. and Props they can try to, if you care a ton. Well, yeah, but whatever. They can feel that crowd and say, oh, you know what? This crowd didn't really like the, the salty humor. Mm-hmm. We're going to go for, I have more clean material here. I can do that. I can switch that. So actors don't have that opportunity. But what if they did? What if a director had told them, like, here's a show. You're going to memorize your lines. We're going to memorize them all just flat. There's no inflection on anything. I don't want you guys putting any emotion into the show whatsoever. It is an absolute black and white version of this play. Mm-hmm. And then when we put it up to perform, we're going to let the audience dictate how the show feels. You guys are going to have to read the audience and then perform to them. So uh-huh. the show becomes whatever you know you feel like the, that audience in particular is looking for. And that, it's your guys. It's up to you guys to create that. That would be really cool to see kind of be workshopped. I think I would I'm just sitting here listening to that that idea and thinking like I think you'd have to give them a starting and ending point. Why? I don't know why. I'm I mean just, the show has a starting and ending point. I mean if you know they've got a story to tell. It's mm. just uh what they what they want to put into it how, like the through line that they want to tell. That mm. what's the what's the through line that they want to tell for that particular performance to that particular di- that's audience. That's solely dictated by audience response. Right. Yeah. How how they work with the crowd or the you know the the artist's interpretation of, of how that crowd mm. is working. It's just like something a stand-up comedian gets to do that we never we never get to. And I think it's such a cool dynamic. Mm. You know? That fourth wall that we just get to like rely on. Yeah. As for safety. Mm-hmm. And that's how that feels. It feels like to me when there's lights on stage, the audience is just a blur and they're just noise. They're not actual people sitting in there. And I feel like, man, I, I like that idea that you can Focus on one person and say, "I'm going to reach out to this person. I'm going to try and get this person engaged." Yeah, and I, I would love to see there is more of a opportunity for actors to work on that or practice that, because um, I think we could do a lot with it. Um, but yeah, we don't we don't really do that. No, yeah, I I've had a, some experiences within the last year of doing some immersive theater, and I feel like in those environments you could create something like that that mm-hmm. would be really effective where you make the show almost about them. Mm-hmm. It would be it would be a unique thing to explore. I mean to me I just anything that would put actors in an uncomfortable position. That's the kind of thing I would I would look for especially in this community mm-hmm. where I feel like man, you know, we are a, we are a very PC planet now and there's a big there's a big um, push to not offend anybody, you know? <laughs> and I feel like man, <laughs> Theater wouldn't be what it is yeah. if it didn't offend people, yeah. if it didn't rile people up. Yeah, you know, um, I think this might be a, going a bit far, but um, I can tell you for me personally, if the, if the movie Joker was a live performance, I think it would have incited a riot. 
Yeah. You know, I was that into that movie. I mean, I was so, it, to me, that movie was a call to arms for people like me, you know. Mm. Um, and it was, it was amazing to, to, wow. to have a, a story that was told to, to me, I'm an ill person, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like we're typically ignored and we're, um, to see a whole movie that's kind of about us was a huge, a huge deal. And, and it made me feel empowered. And I just mm-hmm. thought, man, like getting to see that in a movie theater, there's some safety there because mm-hmm. there's a distance between me and the movie screen. But if you put real live people in there, if there was a, if Joaquin Phoenix was actually there in person and I got that same performance from mm-hmm. him, I mean, it would just would have affected me completely differently. And I just feel like don't shy away from that. That's the power of theater. That's not a detriment. Mm-hmm. You know, it don't people shouldn't be scared about being offended. You know, it, we and I don't think people in the theater should be afri- afraid of offending people. Um, I think that's kind of the point here. So yeah. um, I just see a great too much focus on let's uh, you know let's make sure everyone's nobody's offended. Um, and let's well, put on the safest performance we possibly can yeah. rather than, you know, taking a look at the whole and saying, what can theater do for the world today? I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, we, we look at some of the things that have been happening with how people have responded to specific stimuli, whether they were heard in November or not, you know, what I'm trying to drive at. I find that if we were challenging our audiences like we hope that an actor would be challenged with the with material Mm -hmm. like all right because this is where growth comes from is Mm -hmm. when we find something new and we push through that and come through it on the other side for better or for worse at least we got through it yes Mm -hmm. um we're challenging the audience there's there's i would i i'm gonna say i'm sure there's a i think there's a fine line between challenging and outright offense for offense sake there is. I I typically don't have an issue with offending for offense sake. I get why people are get really tired of that, and um, it does get old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there is a place for it. But yeah, it's not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in offending anybody just to offend somebody. I just I I feel like that's a waste. But um, challenging people, uh, I think, is really important, especially challenging your actors. And uh, I don't I don't know how an audience can really be challenged if the performers on stage aren't as well. Yeah, you know, um, if if the actors on stage feel like they understand what this whole show is about, they got this all under lock and key. Like they're so confident that they understand the point of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of feel like the the audience might feel like they're getting talked down to. There's this, um, you know, like um, there's an an attitude of, oh, I got this. It's something for you to learn. You know, mm-hmm. we don't need to learn these things. You need to learn these things. Yeah. Um, I much prefer the idea of the actors are up there saying, hey, we need to learn this. We need to figure this out together. Yes. And that's an opportunity that I feel like live theater has. Like right now, I, I, you know, empathy is a big deal. I feel like the the uh, people who are of the right need to need to experience different stories. They need to empathize with stories that they're not familiar with. They need to see life through other people's eyes. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're bad people. I just think they lack exposure. Yes. And um, I feel like, man, that's that's where theater, that's our responsibility, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. You know, we can't move these people into different communities. We mm-hmm. can't pick these people up and force them into integration and these kinds of things, you know, but as a theater group, we can bring that to them. We can mm-hmm. tell them stories from different communities and they might hate it. Yeah. That doesn't matter. They might be really offended because we said Black Lives Matter. I don't care. I'm here to kind of push on that. Yeah. And if, if they do get really upset by it, then I feel like I'm doing my job. Yeah. 
you know? Well, then uh, that's where the discussion can finally happen. Like if we're, if we're. Oh, putting, actual discussion. Yeah. yeah if yeah. we're putting that on them, forcing you to deal with it, as opposed to dialing it back because we're afraid of how you'll respond, get an angry tweet, a bad Yelp review, a flat out email to mm-hmm. the board or whatever. If we didn't worry about those repercussions from putting out challenging material, smart, approached with homework being done, mm-hmm. so we're not just flying off half-cocked, like I could be prone to do with a microphone in front of myself, you know, doing this live. Mm-hmm. I could say something that I haven't fully thought out because I want a hot take. Mm-hmm. If we're putting out something that we've put effort into to then challenge our communities, mm-hmm. whether they love it or hate it, mm-hmm. at least they felt something. Mm-hmm. And maybe the next time they go to act on their, we'll say, prejudiced impulses, they'll remember that performance and it might stop them or give them some pause. That's exactly right. I think a good movie that um, highlights that is The Birdcage. Because mm. um, when it came out, people were not talking about the trans community, you know, people weren't talking about gender identity. It just, you know, gay was still kind of a weird thing at that time. And they put on this full birdcage movie that was just like unapologetic about how inclusive it was. And it's talking about these issues that people still find taboo and whatnot. Mm. Um, today I am so impressed that movie still holds up. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm, I keep thinking like that seems like a movie that cancel culture would go after today because it was just made at a time when we weren't as culturally aware of one another, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but they approached that project with care, you know, like the people who were involved with it gave a shit about what they were talking about and knew that they were challenging the community who was going to go see that. Mm. Um, you know, people who are Gene Hackman fans would not have expected him to be a part of that movie. If anyone went to that movie, just go, Oh, I see anything Gene Hackman's in, you know, like they could have been in for a real big shock as far as, you know, how that end of that movie (laughs) turns Mm. out for Gene. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I feel like that's kind of a project where, they had a challenge. They, they took it seriously. They took it respectfully. And it absolutely paid off. I, I wish we would see more of that. Yeah. Absolutely. I well, think, you know, like the, the show I just saw recently, mm-hmm. it feels like that's more the problem where people are focusing on the wrong things. Like it seems like they're more focused on making sure they have this diverse cast uh, and people of different color and people of different religious backgrounds and, and all this kind of stuff, which you should. You would just hope that these are the people that this is the people of your community. Your community is coming out to audition for your show. Your community should be represented. If your community isn't that diverse, then your, your show doesn't have to be that diverse. Your community's not. Represent your community. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, my my focus should always be on telling the story. Now, I love the idea of uh, not using race to determine roles. You know, I'm like, yeah, if the role doesn't call for a specific person to be white or black, then yeah, mix that stuff up. I think that's totally fine. Get the best actor for the part. Uh, I hate the argument that like, I can't play a gay character because I'm not a homosexual or, you know, Mm. that, that kind of argument to me. I'm like, this is what actors do. We, we, we play people that we're not, you know, we, um, this is kind of the job. And, uh, I feel like, especially when it comes to things like, um, sexuality, we all deal with this in theater. It is not just gay people who deal with um, that kind of uh, that that environment. Everybody in theater deals with that environment, um, and we all are trying to you know figure this out and tell this story together. And I just kind of feel like this idea that only certain people can tell certain stories 
that seems like a real dangerous, stupid, wasteful way to take theater, you know? To, to a point, yeah. I mean, f- for me, as you were talking about that, the, one of the things that c- came to my mind is that no, anyone, there should be a little more freedom on who tells stories. But I always find that someone who's lived that life is going to tell it uh, more authentically. Mm. I mean, I would have to gauge the level of talent of that person. Yeah. Like, they might have a more authentic story. I get that their ability to tell it in a more authentic way. That I have to say that goes on their talent. It has nothing to do with their experience. But then again, when we, when we were talking about empathizing with people. Empathizing. Yeah. Empathizing. Sorry. Empathizing with people. Jameson. <laughs> um, that's just, I'll, I'll blame it on that. Um, not the fact that I can't talk after working with kids all day to empathize with people. I feel like I've played parts that were written for Middle Eastern characters. Uh I don't think I can do that anymore despite my racial ambiguity when people look at me. I mean, I still have people who who think I'm just Caucasian and then there are people who see me as just Navajo but then there are people who have no idea right, and yeah. go and lumping me into things. Yeah. I've been called black. Right. Yeah. I've been called I was like, which part of Africa did you come from? <laughs> I've had a woman ask me that question. Really? I'm like, yeah. Oh, I'm wow. like, uh never? Uh-huh. No, I've not I've I've only been to Japan with my passport. Uh-huh. But like and people think I'm Japanese. And it's it's an interesting thing to hear that I could pass uh-huh. to that one person. Uh-huh. But if I were to say try and tell an authentic story, it would be if you gave that like for the person I'm sliding into this role, this hypothetical role is super talented. I find that someone who has lived that life has got the ability to tap into something deeper that say if we're talking about heterosexuals playing a homosexual part that a heterosexual might not necessarily be able to tap into. However, one of the things that I feel that you're talking about is that these experiences are experiences that we sh- all share yeah. to an extent. Love is love, right? right. So we, we've all experienced that to some degree, hopefully, in our mm-hmm. lives. We've, and we know what it's like to be told no when that love is being shut off or we're having our heart broken. That's something that we can tap into there. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there are specific universal truths, I'd like to hope, because if... Not then this whole, there's, I mean, peace seems really hard to get to then if we can't agree on at least some of those things. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to start talking myself in circles, but that's where I would push back a little bit on what you're saying. Well, so as far as you playing a character of a different race, um, I think that you, you should have the ability to, to take that challenge. You should also understand that you're, gonna, you sh- you're, open, you're opening yourself up for a lot of criticism. Um, and I think that that should be fair. I wish that criticism would come fairly and um, with the intention to help people grow as opposed to just shaming people or mm. trying to make them feel embarrassed or racist for daring to accept a part that you know isn't, isn't catered to you and your race. Um, when, when those situations come up, my first I don't like to focus on the fact like uh, on the race part of that. I more want to think about like why is the director, whoever chose this play, why are they choosing this play? If there's not, a large um, portion of, let's say, Middle Eastern actors in your community that are going to come out and audition for this, then Mm. why do you feel like this is a story that needs to be told? How is your story told more effectively? 
if you don't have, you know, how you, how are you telling West Side Story more effectively if you don't have a Puerto Rican community mm-hmm. to to tap into f- to fill into it, right? Yeah, yeah. And you better have an answer for that. Yes. If you don't have an answer for that, then you deserve a lot of criticism for getting up there and telling a story and not putting that kind of thought into it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like there's that theater deserves to go on. It deserves to be thoroughly criticized, and mm-hmm. pe- the people involved with it should hopefully grow from it. Mm-hmm. But the idea of just shutting it down. Um, and shouting people down and telling them to just stay away from that kind of thing. I just feel like that's destructive. That's where you get, people aren't going to have the opportunity to learn, you know, like this is an opportunity for people to get up there and kind of embarrass themselves a little bit. And that's a great way for people to learn. It's, you know, it's embarrassing, it's painful, but um, it's great for people to learn. People don't, you know, people don't like being embarrassed and they certainly don't want to find themselves in that situation a second time. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, uh, where my school job as a dean, I mean, a lot of that's that's how I teach and reach kids. Embarrass yourself? No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I embarrass I embarrass both of us. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I you know, I, I all day today, my introductions were filled with you know weird, weird accents and things, just trying to like you know embarrass myself, but get them to laugh with me because yeah. I'm uncomfortable. It's right. my first right. day with a new population of kids. I yeah. need to, I need to kind of break down any walls that I've built around myself, Mm -hmm. you know, with anyway, but then also like when I have someone act up, be disrespectful, we got to like gently call that out. Mm -hmm. And I find that like, if that is a little embarrassing more than it is shaming, then there is like, you know, they can see where I think this is what you're getting at. They can see where the the disconnect was in their behavior, right? Because I then think that work at improving on that. Embarrassment takes an amount of empathy. It's like they kind of see the perspective of somebody else and see themselves through somebody else's eyes, and that's how they get embarrassed. Is because they're like, "Oh, I thought I was being mm-hmm. this, in reality, I was being that," and yeah. that's you know shameful or embarrassing on myself. Whereas if they're just being shamed, they're in a defensive posture where it's just like, "No, I'm not. No, I'm not." Yeah. yeah. And then they're not accepting responsibility. They're not empathizing. Mm-hmm. They're just shutting down and feeling attacked. And then they're they're turning on Alex Jones full blast. Oh God, I hate you! <laughs> Don't make me think of that bastard. No, we won't. We won't. We're gonna we're gonna change it. We're gonna change subjects now. <laughs> All right. Before we get going, I want to get it on record. Mm-hmm. Batman is better than Superman. Batman is not better than Superman. Here's the deal. Everybody can, anybody can relate to Batman because he deals with that kind of like darkness and silence and torture that we all kind of go through. We yes. all have secrets that we keep to ourselves. Oh, what are you talking about over But there? Superman represents hope, which is not something we all have. Um, and it's not something that we all uh, stew over. It's something that we have to challenge ourselves to achieve. And we have not held ourselves responsible to that challenge. Like, mm. uh, we are not a hopeful culture. We do not promote hope. We don't, you know, we promote Batman. We promote hate and we promote vengeance and we promote fascism and we promote, um, you know, uh, authority, authoritarianism, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm like, that's just not what Superman is about at all. He has much greater ideals and, um, you know, I love the the perspective of this is a, an alien coming with a different perspective on Earth, coming and looking at what we are and what our opportunity is, and trying to show us all like if you know if you all just work together, you could do some actually like really really awesome things. Mm-hmm. Whereas Batman is more like no, we're forever separate, we're forever apart. Nothing can ever bridge our our this gap. You deserve to be punished because of what happened to my parents. Like it's just a weird. Oh. 
it's just a weird, vengeful, dirty, negative, pitiful, emo-driven hellhole. And um, there you go. <laughs> Superman is better than Batman. <laughs> so did that put an end to that argument? I guess so. Before we go, what what's your ghost light these days? What's that mantra for you that this, keeps you working at yourself? Um, I got this from uh, Christy Montour Larson. Mm-hmm. It's you are enough. It's um, an incredibly important mantra for people who deal with um, borderline personality disorder, which is what I have, because uh, we constantly, we don't have a sense of identity, a sense of self. Mm-hmm. We constantly change who we are to try to make other people like us, so we need somebody else to tell us that we're valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that reminder that, no, 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 I don't need anybody else to tell me that I'm valuable. I'm valuable enough on my own. I'm enough. Um, that's been a long, hard lesson for me to learn, and Christy was the first person to tell me that um, during the first show she cast me in, and I was all upset that I couldn't act as well as the lead actress did, and I was I felt totally overwhelmed and outmatched, and I didn't belong on stage, and, and that's all she told me is, you mm. are enough, and she was so confident in the way that she said it, it, it just really took me by surprise. And the more that I've thought about that simple little phrase, the more I've thought, like, that's one of the coolest truths and the easiest mantras I can try to remind myself of that I've ever heard. And so, yeah, you are enough. I think it's important, though. Absolutely. Well, shout-outs to Christy Montour Larson. I've shout echoed out. her and you through her statements yeah. quite often on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> so I want to thank Colin Ahern for being a guest on the Ghost Lights podcast. It has been a pleasure and Thank an you honor. for having me. Thank you so much. Dan, do the damn thing. Jesus, you made me feel like I voted for Trump. Did you? No, of course not. (laughs) No. I voted against him twice. I had to do that twice, people. What the hell? And I keep, I keep, uh, I mean, I fantasize every day that I'm going to wake up and he's dead. Like, I just oh. keep thinking that I want to see that headline uh. um, because I am very curious. I'm like hungry curious for what happens next. You know, mm. like if he dies, then who is going to try to take that mantle? Because it, 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 I know it's going to be like a Rudy Jr. kind of a guy. It's going to be an absolute numbnut. It's going to be somebody with a gigantic forehead who's involved in some really... Really stupid shit. Yeah. But they're not going to have the kind of charisma or, or ability that Trump has. And so they're just going to make an idiot out of themselves. This I'm is just, the thing that I've never... I mean, this this might... We might cut this from the pod because we're talking politically here. Um, I never bought in to the idea that that guy with the big tie... And the frontward fat guy lean. I say that because I've caught myself in mirrors, and I think I've got that. That's that's a you've got the Trump. I've got the Trump lean, yeah. and I really hate seeing that in myself. Yeah. But there's nothing I can do about it's it. It's kind of cartoonish. It reminds me yeah. of that character from Popeye. You know who I'm talking about? Oh yeah, Baloo. No, no, not Baloo. No, he's, he's like uh, he's he's one of the other characters. He's got like tiny little feet and a big round belly. Oh, the hamburger guy. The hamburger Wimpy. guy. There you go. Wimpy. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, definitely. He's yeah. the wimpy. He's got the wimpy fat yeah. guy lean. Yeah. Anyway, he, I never understood that he had charisma. Right. People were swooned by right. that guy. But that he, see, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
This goes back to what we were talking about because what you're admitting to yeah. is a lack of ability to empathize with somebody that you don't understand. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes. And theater has the ability to bridge that gap. Trump is very much, I want to say he's very much like me, but he's like the exact opposite of me. So we have both have personality disorders and mine is the exact opposite of his. Um, so where he only thinks about himself, I only think about everybody else. And both of those things cause havoc. It's not like um, I don't want to come off as if saying I'm this totally selfless person and that's such a great thing. It has caused nothing but problems in my life and other people's lives. So it's not a brag. It's just, you know, these things are dangerous behaviors. And um, uh, Trump got there for a reason. I think I don't think it's um, um, coincidence that both of us have Scottish mothers. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think that's true. Like there's just, just there's certain, you know, both of us experienced some level of trauma when we were being raised and it sent both of us on a different path. Trump's path is very unique in that it was covered up by obscene amounts of money and nobody who seemed to care about him individually. So no one gave a shit that this guy was growing up stupid. Mm-hmm. No one gave a shit that this guy, it just no one cared about him. And I'm like, so I can empathize with Trump. I, you know, I get it. Like it must kind of suck to, to grow up and know that your parents didn't love you. Mm-hmm. Um, the people around you don't value you for anything except for what you can possibly do for them. You know, like that's a weird, sad, lonely. But do you think he knew that at any point in time? He he's, he's, uh, doesn't always... care. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's like, that's to me, that's where he's. The, there's the crux. Right. So, yeah. See, he's still responsible. He's an adult and he's responsible for his actions. And that's where he's a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, so like I, said, I have sympathy for him and empathy for him, but it goes to a point. Yeah. All these things. Um, you know, should be addressed, and he should have gotten them addressed back when he's in his teens or twenties. You know, the fact that he still has them in his seventies thir- is by choice. Yeah, it's because he's you know lazy and enjoys being ignorant. Yeah, it's easier that way. <laughs> no, no, I mean, shoot, that, that I mean that's what listening. Did, did you watch any of the finals, the NBA finals? Nope. All right, so Monty Williams, the head coach of the Phoenix Suns. Mm-hmm. Um, had some really good stuff caught by microphones on the sideline talking to his teammates. Oh, yeah? His players. You mean good stuff? or Yeah, really good oh, stuff. Okay. No, it wasn't like hot mic. He said right. something he shouldn't have said. Um, he, <laughs> Sorry, I just had a family guy joke right into my head, so I got to shake that off. Um, anyway, he had said something like, what we want is on the other side of hard. So you got to get through this. And I think this is something we've been talking about this entire podcast or alluding to. We Mm -hmm. talked about it. We've touched on it the last 20 minutes is challenging ourselves, getting through that hard, Mm -hmm. that difficult experience Mm -hmm. to get to what we've, I mean, people call it a promised land, just accomplishing a goal, experiencing this joy that we've built up in our brains has to be done through more times than not an obstacle, a mm-hmm. challenge in front of us. And you're right. Some of us see that challenge and we just stop right there. Mm-hmm. We don't go through it. Some of us even back off of that and never go near that wall again. Yeah. I feel like somehow we've, we've turned that wall into some sort of a boogeyman. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, it's still supposed to just be an obstacle. It's just a challenge. And it's something that like any other obstacle we're supposed to overcome, but there seems to be a, societal agreement that no we're, we're not doing that anymore mm. we're just you know we don't want to piss anybody off we're scared the next person who gets mad is going to go on a shooting spree or whatever so we just you know gloves off with everybody and we don't push and they and 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 those terrible things happen even without us 
challenging them or challenging ourselves to take care of them. I mean, there's that, but to me, I, I mean, I don't mean to be cold-hearted, but I look at the much bigger picture. I'm like, there's a lot more people at threat, you know, right now than than uh, the people that can die during a school shooting or during a mass shooting. Um, the entire species is under threat. You know what yeah, I mean? So I'm yeah. like, if, if we need to somehow work really, really hard to get through to one another, and this attitude that we have of either just succumbing to the uselessness of trying to reach out to the other side, or this attitude that we have that there's certain topics that are just too complicated for us to, to broach, or they're too um, PC, I don't know, for us to, to be able to approach. I, I just find that stuff so stupid. It's just like you're looking at our potential and you're just cutting it out. You know, you're, you're just making us worse. Um, I think the opportunity, if you have an opportunity to step in and play a character of a different race, I think that's an awesome challenge. And if I got, ever got that opportunity as an actor, the first place I'd go is somebody who is a part of that race. And I would sit there and talk to them about it. And I'd talk to them about the show and I'd talk to them about the character and, you know, get these people's opinion and try to see, challenge myself. Can I accurately portray the life that this person has explained to me? Can I empathize with that? Can I get mm. my mind wrapped around that? Can I give that performance? The audience, Especially if it's something like it's a race that, um, um, uh, let's say, like the, the Asian community. Yes. Where like they're from a whole different part of the world. They, they look different, but they're a total different culture as well. They're not like uh, black Americans who have been a part of America for, forever. You know what I mean? They're a, just kind of a different sect of people. And when we, uh, I'm, I'm trying to tiptoe here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Tiptoe, tiptoe lighter. No, no, no. I'm, what, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that. People respond to what they're comfortable with. So we, as human beings, like to see people who look like us, talk like us, pray like us. You know what I mean? That makes that makes us feel safe and comfortable. It's not it, true. It justifies the choices we've made. Right. And so if I was going to tell a story to a bunch of racist assholes about how black people are okay or how the Asian community is just another community of people, they're not different, they don't deserve extra hate or any of that. They didn't cause the virus. You want to teach people these kinds of things. You could put like an all Chinese cast on there, you know, and then put on the show. And yeah, everybody in the audience is going to be maybe extraordinarily uncomfortable and get into that same position we talked about the other person was in, defensive, feeling like they're being attacked. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if you put someone that looks a little bit more like them, someone that's familiar, maybe even someone from their community into, into one of those roles, and you're trying to say, see, what we're trying to do is bridge the gap. We're trying to show you that these people who you think are so different than you mm. aren't all that different from you. As a matter of fact, they're almost exactly like you. And you guys, we should all be getting along. You know it's, what I mean? Yeah. I feel like you know, there's, there's a power of theater and an ability to do that um, that is getting completely shaken off. The, the idea that is getting completely shaken off because people are afraid that a community of people is going to be offended that uh, a misrepresentation might occur. Mm. And I feel like it, the, the, the intention of the play isn't to necessarily represent your community fully accurately it's not like you know we're not telling a, a autobiography here you know what i mean like we're, we're trying to tell a story to this community and this community can hear this story in a certain way and trying to say there's only one way the community needs to hear that story and if you diverge from that way then you're doing something wrong i i, I feel like wow you're just taking the power of theater and throwing it in the trash mm. You know, you're, yeah. you're saying, no, no, no. The, the, its ability to reach out and challenge people and touch people is, you know, uh, second place to its ability to offend somebody. Mm. So that, yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at when it comes to the, 
your ability to play different parts in different races. Not that it shouldn't be taken seriously. It absolutely should be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, It just should be treated like a challenge instead of a, you're a racist because you did that. I I just don't, I can't put that together when I feel like you you can say that about any part. Like I've never, I was not George Washington. You know, I have to to be honest about that and upfront about that. I I played George Washington on stage and I was never president of the United States. You, You weren't? Yeah. And so I'm just like, you know, how, how there's that disconnect where people feel like, mm. well, Colin, you can pretend to be president, that's okay, but you can't pretend to be a different color. Mm. You know, I, I guess I just lose, like, where, who's making these rules? I don't know how to answer that question. I would, I would say that what I kind of feel like if you're presenting for your specific example, you're trying to educate a, a community that has been un, like just doesn't have an exposure to right. the Asian community. Right. And so you try and then present it with, I'm assuming, a bunch of actors from the community, so predominantly a bunch of white actors. Right, so I'm a director, and I decide yeah. that this is the show I want to put on for this community because I feel like it'll help bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. In my community, I don't have a very large Chinese population. So I've already put myself into a hole by saying that, you know, I know I'm going to be creating this, this situation. Mm-hmm. I would have to be able to say artistically that I can make this decision and it makes sense because it's going to achieve my goal of bridging this gap. Yeah. I don't know that it, it's what show it would be effective at doing that. I don't know if that's, you know what I mean? I don't know if the show exists that, that would, where that uh, would make sense. So that would, you know, could be an artistic position you could defend. Um, but I feel like just as an idea, that it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that, you know, you, you can't shove a people, you can't shove a story down someone's throat if they're not prepared to hear it. And, uh, I, I like the idea of challenging somebody. I don't like the idea of trying to overwhelm people. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's one of the bigger issues we're running into with the divide of left, right is that, um, you know, I think us as people on the left are constantly calling people on the right stupid, Yeah. you know, or we're or, or like, you know, we just, we, demean them and, and pretend as if um, we're somehow different than them. And I'm like, no, 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 we, we have, we're the same stupid. We make the same stupid decisions that they do. We're humans and we're all you know, susceptible to do this stuff. When you throw all this information at someone who's just like, look, I know how to hunt. I know how to farm. I know how to change my oil. I don't know how to make a vaccine. So when you start telling me that you know, it's got this in it and this in it and this in it, it, it just sounds overwhelming to me. Mm-hmm. And you can keep saying it over and over and call me stupid for not getting it. Yeah. I don't care. I'm overwhelmed by your information and I don't trust it. Mm-hmm. Continuing to, to hammer at that same effect is doesn't is not effective. You can't just keep hammering away like that and expect that one day people are going to go, oh, you have to adjust your approach. You got to come to the table. You got to get bring these people up to the table to negotiate. And so if that means that I have to find a way to make a story a little bit easier for them to accept or go along with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, by making it more familiar to them or adapt it to, to more to their style. I feel like I could see that decision getting made and I could see it being artistically defended and find a point to it and I would defend it as well. Mm. I just feel like there's a, a, a large voice out there right now and a part of the community that is just saying, nope. It's got to be 100% accurate representation of the story shouldn't be told. Right, at all. right. And I, I feel like, man, that's dangerous territory. The, the thought that I had in, in this last little bit here mm-hmm. is the disconnect of the purpose of theater. Uh, sure. Because your 
you, you, you kind of started by saying the, the purpose of theater should be to connect and talk to people and convince people mm-hmm. and empathize with people. Mm-hmm. But I don't think everybody's purpose of, in theater is that. Right. That's what speaks to you, and that's what you want to do to make theater purposeful to you. Mm-hmm. And so for you, a white actor portraying an Asian get is accomplishing the thing that you think that theater should do. Whereas marginalized populations want to see themselves on stage right. to to see to say I am like I am worthy and my story can be told by right. me. And so they're going to the theater and they're seeing those pieces for different reasons. I hundred percent agree that when if you put a accurately portrayed show on stage in front of and and I literally I think I'm in the same boat as Sam. I hadn't heard as good of an argument that as you put out mm-hmm. for this point of view, mm-hmm. but it's because you based it in what's the point of it. Mm-hmm. If we cut out the point of trying to get a group of people to empathize, mm-hmm. then it makes no sense. But when you put it the way, like, look, y- you put a, a completely um, uh, Asian or black or uh, Jewish population on stage in front of people who have inherent biases against them, they're not going to learn the lesson. And mm. so I think there is a point to telling a story with something you're familiar with. Mm. And so I, I agree with them. I just think that the point of black Amer- Americans telling black stories is not going to convince racist white people uh, uh, to accept them. Right. Mm. But that, that is, so like in the Denver community, it's incredibly diverse, right? So if um, we go to the Denver Center and we see Miss Saigon and they have a white lady playing, you know, the Miss Saigon, mm. um, I feel like, yeah, the Asian community can go like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, what happened there? Do we not? Because I would like to see myself represented up on stage and there, I know there's like thousands of us. So like, mm. what happened there? And I feel like what the director is going to have to say is, um, I just thought that she was better for the role. I don't know. Like, it's going to be some stupid excuse. Mm. He's not going to be able to artistically defend it. However, if he did say, oh, this is what I was trying to do with that, it, it can still be a bad idea. Like, he, he can still face criticism for saying, I was trying to, to make this accomplished, but he should not be dissuaded or discouraged from making that attempt. You know, because I, I like who better than the Asian community to be able to come in there and slap that guy upside the face and be like, I know you were going for this, but whew, you missed. Mm-hmm. I can't tell him that. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I just feel like, yeah. Yeah. It's just the idea of the challenge. Because like, to me, it's not about, um, I don't think that they're necessarily going to achieve what they're aiming for. You know what I mean? And so I feel like um, I, I want them to be open to all that criticism that they should fairly get. Um, and I feel like they're not going to... It's like uh, telling a, a racist person to be quiet. Uh, it's like they can still have all these racist thoughts. They can still... You know what I mean? All you've done is silence them. You're not, you haven't changed them. You know what I mean? You've just made them feel more uncomfortable, which is, a, you know, okay, fine. But it's not solving the fucking problem, you know? So I'm like, you've, you've got to get this person to talk and engage that person and somehow find common ground with that person. And you, you're just not going to do that if you say, like, you're not allowed to tell that story because mm. you're not the color that I want you to be, mm-hmm. you know? As a, as a Navajo, and I, I've, I would, I've, I've, I'm definitely, like, 
this is this has been an enlightening conversation and I really want to I I want to I want to echo that I do think representation is important. I'm not saying that you're not saying that, but I feel like what you're asking for might be or not asking for theorizing. I w- I would think that's a tough ask. I would think that'd be a tough ask. It'd be tough. It would be a tough bill to, to get to that place nowadays. But I don't know. I mean, again, we go back to that stand-up comedian conversation. Asking this guy to make people crack up laughing in five minutes is a big ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, these are challenges, and they're not meant to be easy. Mm-hmm. I don't. That doesn't mean they should be avoided. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, absolutely. No, I'm not saying we we should avoid it because it's hard to get that to that point. The way in which we would be going about it is for me right at this particular point this is the a challenge that i need to work through mm-hmm. and see really where 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 it's effective you it, that was really interesting stuff though and, and i think we got to a cool a cool place with the thought process about how that would be presented and what the goal is in the end yeah i i feel like the theater community is a um unique community in that like I said, we're all the freaks and geeks. We're all the weirdos. And um, we're a home for that kind of group. And mm-hmm. so I, it's, I feel like we should all be able to come together as the ones who are kind of the outcasts and the misfits. And we all have our differences. Um, we all experience life differently that somehow we can see this a similarity through that, mm-hmm. that we all have our challenges. And yes, it is important that people understand um, what the gay lifestyle is like and that and the oppression that these people face. It's important that people understand that. And a person who's never faced that oppression might have an incredibly difficult time ever um, performing that part, you know, yes. or be able to sell the, you know, yes. the idea of oppression to another audience. That's absolutely true. It should be a challenge for that performer, a challenge for us as human beings to empathize with people, to put ourselves in, in their shoes. And if we find ourselves unable to project that kind of uh, lifestyle, we should see that as a failure on our own part to... Um, to kind of attach to our humanity. Mm. That um, don't take it as a, a, a well. These people, I'm just never going to understand. So uh, I'll let them deal with it. You know, I'm just separate yeah, from yeah. them now. I just feel like that. You know, that's that's a failure. We're not coming together if we're doing that. We're intentionally keeping ourselves apart. Mm. We're hitting that wall and we're stopping there. Yeah, and we're turning around and running away. From it. <laughs> Thank you.